I'm Chance. And I'm Sarah Catherine. And this is Conservation Connection. Presented by Last Chance Endeavors. We're a husband and wife team running a wildlife education nonprofit. It's focused on connecting students to their environment. Each week here on Conservation Connection, we do just that by introducing you to the groundbreaking science and conservation work that's happening every day across the globe. We talk to professionals in the world of conservation science and wildlife management and ask them about their career, their current projects, their wild and crazy stories from the field, and everything in between. This episode is part of our very first mini-series. Over four weekends, we're highlighting the research experience for undergraduates program that happens every summer at the Fort Johnson campus in Charleston. Listen in to hear the stories of 10 undergraduate researchers as they learn what it's really like to be part of real-world science. Let's get to the show! Alrighty guys, welcome to another episode here at the College of Charleston Grice Marine Lab. This is part of our Research Experience for Undergraduates program series that we're doing this summer of 2019. So we're very excited. We're sitting across the table from Carolina, Sam, and Kelsey. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thanks for being here, guys. So we're just going to start by going around the table and having you kind of introduce yourself to our audience. So Sam, why don't we start with you? Uh, yeah, so uh, as they already said, my name is Sam Doffenbaugh. Uh, I'm from Chicago, Illinois, and I go to DePauw University in Indiana. And what year are you? I will be a senior this coming fall. Awesome. Uh, I'm Carolina Rios. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. I go to New York University, and I'll be a rising junior. Awesome. My name is Kelsey Coates. I'm from Maryland, and I'm a rising senior at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. All right. Well, welcome, guys. I hope you're having a fun summer working on your projects. Uh, one of the cool things of having all three of you guys in the same room for this episode is that you kind of are all working on a similar idea, which is the idea of like environmental contaminants, chemicals that are causing issues in the environment, obviously, particularly the marine environment. So, Kelsey, can you tell me kind of a little bit about what your project is this summer? So basically, there was a chemical called tributyltin. It was used in anti-fouling paints in boats. And it was found to be an endocrine disruptor, meaning it acts like a hormone in the body. And it's affecting the species called mud snails, causing female snails to grow penises and other male sex organs, which we call imposex. So it's basically just throwing off the whole regulation of this species. Yeah, it's a mess. Now, from, from my knowledge, anti-fouling paint, what is that? What does that do? So anti-fouling paints prevented like barnacles and other marine organisms from growing on the bottom of ships and making the ships look kind of dirty and gross but they were found to have so much more negative effects than what they were originally made for. Okay, awesome. I mean, not awesome, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're glad you're studying. Um, Carolina, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your project? Yeah, uh, so I am studying the effects of PCBs on marine invertebrates. Uh, so PCBs, polychlorinated biphenyls, were used for, well, just a bunch of different industrial uses. Uh, they were actually banned in the 1970s. But something about them, what made them so useful and why they're still in the environment, they're very stable. They have a very long half-life. So even though we're not necessarily putting them out anymore, they're still there and they still have a pretty significant impact on our ecosystems. Cool. And so what specifically with the PCBs are you looking at this summer? Yeah, so I'm looking at three species of marine invertebrates. So specifically benthic marine invertebrates. So benthic species live in the interface between the seafloor and the water. Um, so they kind of get this dual interaction with both the PCBs that are in the water and the PCBs that are in the sediment. So part of what we're doing is we're looking at 
Oh, gosh, this is going to be boring. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, we're looking at equilibrium partitioning theory, uh, which is essentially the idea that PCBs, since they're hydrophobic, they have a certain affinity for water, a certain affinity for the sediment, and a certain affinity for the animals themselves and their fat tissue, and will settle in one of those three, depending on what the concentration is, et cetera, um, what so, the animal is. So basically, the idea is that You've got these three different environments, right? You've got the water column, you've got the sediment, and you've got the animal itself. And the properties of PCBs themselves are going to determine whether they spend more time in the water, more time in the animal, more time in the sediment, and how they exchange between the two. And you're just trying to understand that movement of PCBs in the environment. to some extent, yes. That isn't necessarily the focus of our project. The focus of our project is more on uh, modeling. There was a proposed model that is supposed to predict the injury to benthic species, which sounds like a lot of very boring words for something that's a really cool concept, actually, (laughs) because what models allow us to do is to create these estimates, these predictions of damages. And by predicting damages, we can then understand the extent of restoration that we need. And in actual litigation and policy, we can understand uh, what how much money needs to be given to repair these damages. Awesome. So that's that's something that kind of the, both of your projects, Kelsey and Carolina, have in common is that you're working with chemicals that persist for a very long time. Once they're created, they're stable. They don't break down easily from like sunlight or being exposed to different pH or whatever, which means that even though we've stopped producing them, they're still causing effects today. Now, Sam, you're working with something that is still in production, right? Yeah, that's right. So tell me a little bit about your project. So I'm studying the effect of phthalates on the early development of sea urchins. Now what phthalates are, they're a group of chemicals that are added to plastics to promote durability and flexibility. And as you know, there are a lot of plastics in the ocean. And so a lot of these plastics have phthalates in them. And so when they're in the ocean, they they leach out of the plastics and uh, they affect marine life. They're known to be endocrine disruptors uh, like tributylton. And basically, they interfere with the production of a hormone called thyroxine. And thyroxine plays an essential role in growth and metabolism. We're basically exposing larvae to increasing concentrations of phthalates. And we are seeing how the sea urchin larvae are are growing in response to these treatments. Cool. So give us a little bit of background. What made you pick this research topic? Well, this goes back to high school. So <laughs> I, went to, I went to the Bahamas in high school with a group of students from the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago. And we visited a lot of different ecosystems. And the one that I was most interested in was the intertidal zone. And when we were in the intertidal zone, there were tons of sea urchins everywhere. Like that was basically the most common animal that we saw. Since then, I've always kind of been interested in them. And also, I'm pretty interested in larvae as well, because larvae make up a significant uh, proportion of the animal mass in the ocean. So they're very important. So this project just seemed very fitting for me to study. As far as phthalates go, um, I didn't have a prior interest in them. This is (laughs) something that was just kind of presented to me. So I went with it. Cool. Something that that has come up a couple of times in this discussion so far is the idea of an endocrine disruptor. 
So to make sure that I'm understanding that right, when we're talking about the endocrine system, we're talking about like the body's hormonal regulation system. So the ways that it uses hormones to regulate everything from metabolic processes, like how you're digesting food, all the way to moods and other parts of your your physiology, right? So when we have something that disrupts that endocrine system, especially a chemical that's not traditionally found in the environment, it can really wreak havoc on all of the organisms that live there. And I think kind of all of these species that you guys are working with really are great what do you call them? Sentinel species? Yeah, we call the mud snails sentinel species sort of because they can uh, sort of identify when these contaminants are present in the environment. So if we are sampling snails and we say, oh, a lot of these snails have impasex, then that means that there is some contaminant that's acting as an endocrine disruptor where they're living in the intertidal zone. So it's easier perhaps to look at the effects that the chemicals are having on the environment rather than looking for those chemicals themselves. Instead of sampling the water and seeing, oh, are there organotins here? You can look at the local species that are there and see if they have been affected by it. It's a very canary in the coal mine effect, right? Right, right. Yeah. And Carolina, tell us a little bit about what got you interested in your research as well as why you wanted to apply to the REU program here at College of Charleston. Um, well, first of all, I'm a huge nerd. I, <laughs> Go nerds. I, I know. It's the time of the nerds. <laughs> Anyways, um... I really liked organic chemistry. That's pretty much the short answer. I've also always been interested in water quality. In high school, we had to do this extra project. And because I am a huge nerd, I built this little wetland system and I tried to run like gray water through it and tried to see if it would clean it up. I don't know if it actually worked because I also was in high school and my <laughs> understanding of science is just like beakers. <laughs> it's a little bit better now. I think I know what's going on. That's a joke. I do know what's going on. <laughs> uh, Does anybody really know what's going on, though? Nah. No. Like, I, I don't feel like I <laughs> If do. I've learned anything this summer is that no one knows what's going on, but we have a best guess. Yeah, that's a fair point. You're methodologically guessing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then what made you interested in applying to this REU program? I think Charleston's a neat area. That's also the short end of it. <laughs> It's uh, beautiful. I really wanted to live by the water if I could over the summer. Also, it is a, a neat area as far as science and especially contaminants, considering we're right on the Charleston Harbor. We, ha we have a lot of shipping going through here. So Yeah, yeah I was going to say, this is a great field site for someone who's interested in water quality and human effects on an environment because you have Charleston here that is such a huge human population. And obviously, that's going to be having an effect on the water. So it's, it's actually a really great study site for someone who's interested in that sort of water quality human interplay. Yeah. Cool. Kelsey, what about you? Um, I'm an environmental science major, so I love to look at the broad picture. I love to look at how humans are affecting their environment and how inhabitants of that environment are being affected. Like, I love looking at the cycles. So when I found this project, it was all about, like, humans made this chemical. We just release it into the environment without really doing too much testing. And these animals are being affected in this way. So I really wanted to study that. And being from Maryland, I love the East Coast. Like I love the wetlands. So this was a perfect site for that. I definitely have to say that you guys picked a pretty great place to spend your summer. We're sitting <laughs> yeah. here in a conference room. We can actually see the water from where we're sitting. And during this recording, I've seen dolphins. So yeah. it's a pretty great place to be for the summer. Yeah. And it's always great to be working somewhere that you actually enjoy the place you're at. So you can go outside and enjoy the day. You aren't just... You know, obviously, I'm sure you guys spend a ton of time in a lab, so it's nice when you're not inside, you can enjoy where you are otherwise. 
So what has been the balance between bench work and field work this summer? Have you guys done any actual collection out there or is it a lot more of you have your you brought your data set here with you and now you're analyzing it and trying to figure out what it means? Well, I can start. I spend like eight hours a day hunched over a microscope and I've been out in the field three times. So, Science. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and it's basically just me counting dead things and then measuring them. So um, that's what a lot of science is. And this is really the first time I've been able to experience that. And, you know, it's frustrating and it can be mind numbing at times. But at the end, when you see the results, it's all kind of worth it. Was it surprising? Did you expect something different or did you kind of is this kind of what you expected coming into it? Um, I, I've been told that, <laughs> that this is what science is like. So. <laughs> I thought I thought I knew what it was going to be like, but you know, you never truly do until you experience it. Yeah, definitely agree with that. I didn't do an RU program, but when I was in my undergrad, we worked looking at how brackish water turtles were deciding where to spend their time based off the temperatures involved, which means that we put data loggers onto turtles and in the mud to measure the environmental temperature and the turtles temperature. And we collected data every hour on 17 turtles for over a year. And then my job was to go through that spreadsheet and like crunch those numbers. And so it was hours on hours, week after week of just trying to make sense of little numbers in spreadsheets. And that's that's science, you know, and it was really cool. We, we learned a new phenomenon that was happening with the species, but it came from that, like really putting the blood, sweat and tears time into doing the science. So I, I definitely agree with that, like wasn't expecting it. Like the media portrays science as like, let me put this thing into a, an oven and then an hour later I'll have a result and we'll catch the killer. And it's <laughs> that is not how real science works. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people kind of have a tendency, especially with like marine biology, to be like, oh, cool. So you get to go like hang out in a boat all day and do Play stuff outside. And yeah, and it's not always that. Carolina and Kelsey, what's, has y'all's experience been pretty much the same? Yeah, I, I went out to the field once. Uh, I stood in a creek in hip boots and I counted little shrimp <laughs> for a while. Uh, I enjoyed it, but I spent most of my day looking at invertebrates in jars or I am running chemistry in the lab. Absolutely. And what about you, Kelsey? Um, I think when I applied, I was expecting it to be a little bit more field work. One thing I didn't know until I got here was that the snails actually regress their sexual organs in the summer. So it doesn't make sense to really sample them in the summer because you know, the sexual organs wouldn't be there. So I've sampled once and we confirmed that, yep, no sexual organs. We don't know what these snails are right now. So that was my one field day. And then I've been in the lab since then. So how has that affected your research? We knew about it. So it's not like a huge like deficit or anything, but it just helps us take a more molecular approach to the project, which is sort of the goal of my piece of the project. So it worked out pretty well. Awesome. So I think that's a, a really good segue. I want to dive a little bit more into why you decided to spend 10 weeks of your summer looking at snails or invertebrates or urchin larvae. Like, what is the big picture here? Why does it matter that you are able to detect organotins in an area based off of the snails? I think people probably don't care about snails. Like, they probably look at them and are like, are those rocks? I don't know. I don't care. But the thing is, they are really important. And one of the main things about these mud snails is they live in the intertidal zone, which is the same area as juvenile fish and small crabs. And those are what bigger fish eat on, what bigger birds eat on. And we eat those bigger fish. We sell those bigger fish. So those fish are probably contaminated in higher levels through a process called bioaccumulation, just meaning that 
you know, big fish have to eat a lot of little fish to get full. So if all those little fish are contaminated with tributyltin, then those big fish are really contaminated. And that could have huge health effects in humans as well as just the local marine economy. So it's important to sort of know that every small species, every small organism plays a role in the bigger picture of our lives. Absolutely. And if you are able to develop or understand better the sentinel species that tells you whether or not this contaminant is present, that's usable all across various different sites. It's not this isn't a Charleston specific issue. It's something that you can say, okay, we learned about it in Charleston, but now we can go look at this harbor that's 200 miles away and to determine the levels of this contamination. And that's the kind of stuff that goes into decision making processes for stuff like fisheries, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So being able to say, hey, are we able to fish this year or what sort of advisories do we need to put out or what species do we need to avoid all based on determining your contamination level from the sentinel species. That's why it's important to look at snails all summer yeah, long. Yeah, man. They're not just rocks, guys. Look it up. Pick them up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's hop over to Sam. What about you? There are basically two big reasons why it is important to study the effect of phthalates on sea urchin larvae. So first, um, although we look nothing alike, humans are actually pretty closely related to sea urchins. So sea urchins and humans are both uh, deuterostomes, which means that when we are first developing as embryo, the first thing that develops is our anus. For that reason, studying how phthalates affect the development of sea urchin larvae can lead to new insights on how these contaminants are affecting human health. Uh, the second big reason why uh, we are studying larvae is because larvae form the base of many marine food webs, which means that organisms and animals at higher levels are consuming larvae and they're consuming the animals that are eating the larvae. And these animals are animals that humans rely on for protein. So if the larvae population is being negatively affected by these contaminants, then there's a pretty good chance that those effects will be felt higher up the food chain and humans will possibly uh, feel those effects as well. I think one of the really interesting things, Sam, about your project is that, you know, we've heard of a lot of the effects of plastics, but like the issue of phthalates is not something I've ever even heard of before or seen any coverage of before. So it's really cool that you're able to focus on that. Yeah. When you're scrolling through Facebook or Twitter, a lot of times you'll see pictures of sea turtles with straws up their noses, penguins that are strangled in plastic beverage rings, even birds with plastic caps spilling out of their stomachs. So the effects of plastics that you can see receive the spotlight. Phthalates are something that you can't really see. It's kind of this invisible danger, and it's equally as bad. So that's another reason why I'm interested in studying the effect of these contaminants on uh, sea urchins. And it's so important, too, because just going about our day-to-day -day lives, we aren't thinking like, oh, there's larvae out in the ocean and we should care about that. Like, it's just, oh, there's fish and sharks and turtles and stuff. And your general person doesn't necessarily consider all the smaller parts of the ocean that really matter and just kind of continue up that food chain and eventually get to us. Yeah, I don't think the normal person thinks about larvae. I think the people that think about larvae all day are called scientists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a really good point that urchins are a, a very important model species for humans because they do share that connection. Most organisms are protostomes where after the egg has been fertilized and it's beginning to develop into an embryo and then a fetus and then it becomes a, a full organism, 
those first steps are really crucial. And so to have an organism like urchins that have similar first steps to humans helps give us an insight into how this particular contaminant might have similar effects on early stage human life and developmental issues from there. Uh, so it, it absolutely is a really important model species that we can use to learn more about our own development and other issues. And then the other thing is that it's really timely because we're in this massive influx of plastic litter into the oceans. And that's just going to continue to accumulate as all of the plastics that have been produced so far and continue to be produced eventually end up out in the oceans. And these chemicals, the phthalates that are leaching th from them, we really need to understand what that's going to do and how that's going to affect not only us, but the food chain below us in every step between here and there. That's awesome. Yeah. And then, Carolina, what about you and the dead shrimp? <laughs> yes, those invertebrates, dead shrimp. Invertebrates, not invertebrates. just shrimp. <laughs> We're spreading the love to all invertebrates. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like Sam and Kelsey touched on a couple times, there is uh, bioaccumulation. So, my little critters are very small. They're eaten by bigger animals were eaten by even bigger animals. And what just happens is the PCBs accumulate to harmful levels. Um, and something that is important is humans do eat those larger animals um, and can also be affected. But there is a second thing, and it is something that I touched on before. Our model, the one that has been proposed and that we are trying to verify, it can be used in litigation to assess damage and to really understand to what extent is this ecosystem changing because of what these companies have put into the water. Uh, so it is, it is very important for us to understand so that these communities that are affected can get the resources that they need for restoration. A lot of science is models and basically all a model is is our best guess at how the world works through numbers. Like we've got a formula that we think explains how things are going to act given a certain set of inputs. And we develop these by looking at data. You look at what has happened in the past and you develop this model that you think is going to predict, you know, the amount of injuries caused by PCB. And then those models are used in lawmaking and in policy creation that allow us to make guidelines for protecting the environment. But you got to make sure that those models are actually accurate. So a big part of what your work is doing is you're collecting empirical data. You're collecting actual measurements of injuries and comparing that to what the model says might have happened. And if they match up, we know it's a valid model and should be used as a force for policymaking. And if they don't match up, then you get to revise the model until they do. And that's how science works. When the model doesn't fit the data, you don't change the data, you change the model so that you're accurately predicting what the world is actually doing. Because that's our job, right? It's just to understand what the world does and how it works. And it's a lot of, it's literally weeks of counting dead things to yes. understand it. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of, of work that goes into it, but it is critically important because literally the work you're doing this summer is validating a model that is going to be used to help countless communities restore their environment based off the damage that's been done to them. That's way cool. That's probably cooler than anything I did this summer. I think it's pretty cool, but <laughs> I also am spending 10 weeks of my life on it, so I hope I think it's cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And speaking of that, is this what you want to continue studying as you're still in school, maybe after you graduate? Do you have kind of plans of where you're heading after school? Yeah, so I guess I should say first a little bit about my education. So yeah. like I said, I go to NYU. I am a general biology major. I have a concentration in ecology, uh, but I had never taken an ecotoxicology course. I'd never done anything ecotoxicology related. 
so this, first of all, this summer was a huge learning curve for me, which has been phenomenal. I've learned so many things. And I am grateful to the program, to my mentor, to everyone that has worked with me as I dropped things and spilled things. <laughs> but I have really enjoyed it. It, it is something that I, I would consider doing in the future. I think ecotoxicology is very cool and very important because it does affect so many people and their lives and the animals and really just the whole world. Like Kelsey was talking about, there have been so many things that have been put into our environment that we didn't really understand the extent of the effect that they would have, but we put them out anyways. And now we're dealing with the, the blowback from that. Yeah. So it, it feels both like interesting work to me and very important work, both of which are very important to me as a person. I want to ask just kind of a general question. This experience that is sort of shaping where you want to go with your career over the next couple of decades, what's the most valuable lesson you think you're taking away so I'm very used to being a student. I'm very used to being the one that's being taught and the one who is getting knowledge from someone else. I'm not necessarily as used to being the position of being an expert, of acquiring knowledge myself, that I am creating myself. So it has been a very new experience for me, not only to take on like a mentee role where I, I am still learning from my mentor, but also to take on an expert role and to truly understand my project and to be able to communicate it to other people. That's cool. And be like, oh, this is why I've gone to school for the last 14 years so exactly. that I can understand this and actually make progress. Yeah, it's not just to get an A on my test. <laughs> yeah, there That's you cool. go. <laughs> um, Kelsey, what about you? Um, I think the most important thing I've learned is that you can literally just do anything in science, like anything that you're interested in. There is probably someone researching it and you can just email them and be like, hey, I want to work with you. And sometimes it seems like that really works out for people. <laughs> so since I'm like environmental science, which is really broad and like the environment has just so many components to it that you can study, I'm really excited to just move from field to field, like depending on what my interests are and what my passions are. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I'm glad that I got that advice from a lot of people here. I love that because a lot of what we do with Conservation Connection is we just shoot emails to be like, hey, yep. we do a podcast. Do you want to be on it? <laughs> yeah, and people are like, yes, say. I'd love to share my stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Same. <laughs> and Sam, what about you? Well, I think my biggest takeaway so far is that science doesn't always go as expected. It's a lot of trial and error. Uh, we have this entire project that we plan out and we get to a certain point and we run into an obstacle. And then we have to adjust our plans. And, you know, we run into another obstacle and we adjust our plans again. And it's a little frustrating. Uh, but over all those failures and obstacles that you overcome, you eventually do get better. And for me, it's been a humbling experience, actually. It seems like this entire summer, you know, there's, there's something every single day that I have to uh, face and, you know, kind of like think my way around. You know, that, that shouldn't discourage anyone from going into science. I mean, even though things go wrong, like you learn from them and you improve every time and eventually you'll get it. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, it is totally a humbling experience to do that. But it's also a really empowering experience to be like, I ran into all of these obstacles and I was able to think my way around them and still have a project, still be able to do a, a solid investigation. And it's really like you look back at the end of it and you're like, wow, I wouldn't be able to do that at the beginning of the summer. But here I am at the end and I've learned so much and it makes the success that much sweeter that you had to struggle for it. Yeah, it's kind of fun. It's a little bit like a puzzle sometimes. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> for sure. Well, thank you guys so much for being on the show with us today. Um, we know you all have a busy week and even weekend uh, with your research. So thank you for making time to speak with us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Conservation Connection. If you enjoyed our podcast, go ahead and subscribe to make sure you catch every episode that we post. We would love to hear from you. So if you want to reach out, go to our website, lastchanceendeavors.com backslash contact and shoot us an email. We love questions from our listeners. So if you heard something that you want to know more about, be sure to let us know. We'll post bonus content that addresses your questions and gives you a little more information. A big thanks to Grice Marine Lab for hosting us and a big thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to tune in next week.